tonight we're going to look at the book of Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 is our next chapter, and it's mostly the words of Jesus. So, for instance, if you look through that chapter, virtually every verse is Jesus except for the first verse. So the uh, words of Jesus are in red in my Bible, so that's easy for me to determine. But uh, there is a, a lot that he says, so I'm not going to waste any time with you. And we'll go and start and hear what Jesus said. But Jesus doesn't mince any words. He calls people out. He tells people what they are, and he explains it. So in verse number one of chapter 23, then, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. So he is telling the people that the scribes and Pharisees are the religious leaders and they have placed all these rules upon the people. Many of them are pretty strict. And he told the people, though, to go ahead and go along with it, that out of respect for the office. However, that doesn't mean that those people are good who are telling you to do this, because he calls them hypocrites in this case, because they say, but they don't do. They don't live what they are preaching and teaching these people. And he gives an example of this in verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So they have made rules for themselves and rules for the people. Sounds like modern politicians. Literally. Uh, 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 if the average person as a property is being threatened by violence, they say, oh, sorry about you, but if their houses were being threatened by the mob, they probably would get upset. So they don't expose themselves to the same crime that the average person has to be exposed to in their lives. So there is a double standard. It was in Jesus's day, and there's a double standard today, I think, among leaders. But we'll continue. Verse 5. But all their works they do to be seen by men. Sounds like politicians to me. To be seen by men. That's, they're not, they're, I have, I got to tell you the honest truth. There's not one in ten of the people who are in Washington, D.C. that are elected officials that I can think of that are really, really self-secure uh, enough to where they can tell you what they really, really believe with a conviction. They're almost always relying upon the polls or relying upon somebody else for their opinion, or they're going to go along with the system. They'll talk about uh, 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 through both sides of their mouth. It's very common. They were doing this in Jesus' day. And remember that the leaders, the, the scribes and Pharisees were more than religious leaders. They actually had political power. They, the temple actually had police force that was actually arresting people and had the arms to enforce their rules on the population. So they were not simply a religious 
council. They were a legal local council that had rules that they could enforce. Some rules they could enforce by force and some they couldn't, but they did have the power to do things to people that would not be pleasant. So verse number five, Jesus continues, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. A phylactery is a, like a, a, a piece of adornment they would wear that might have a verse of the Bible on it, and it would remind them of some religious thing, and they might even have it on their garments uh, adorned with Bible verses so that everybody saw these fancy clothes and these pieces of jewelry that would indicate, well, they must be really religious if they've got it, you know, on the jewelry, in their clothes. And Jesus noticed that they had it on the outside, but notice where they didn't have it. Because in verse six, he also explains in verse six, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. So they had their own VIP section and they would get special treatment and they had the best seats for viewing or hearing or whatever. They also love, according to Jesus in verse seven, greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. So they enjoyed the prestige of their office and they did have a prestigious office because they had to work hard they had to have a good education. They had to be approved by a whole lot of different educational processes in order to get to this position. So once they did, they had it made. And they had fancy clothes. They were usually well off financially. And then they would basically politic. You know, they would go around and, and talk to people and people would talk to them and they considered themselves to be... Uh, you know, very special people. But, uh, but here is what Jesus said about them accepting the term rabbi and, and overemphasizing the, the, the name rabbi. He says, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. So, what Jesus says is that we, we should not elevate individuals to the point to where, okay, you got the clergy and then you got regular people. And I think that's not healthy all the time because if you get so full of yourself as a member of the clergy, then you, you're not, sometimes people think that separates you as a different class of person. You're not, you're just a person. Every preacher is a person. They may be ordained and that's fine, but we need to remember Jesus did not say that your Christianity was better because you have an office or a position. You, Jesus said that the only true rabbi is the Lord, is himself. So ultimately my job is try to get, not be your teacher as much as to be the person introducing you to Jesus and, and that he teaches you individually. Because you got to read the Bible for yourself, hear the word, and, and be convicted in your own heart. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Because these people, they literally considered themselves these lofty, accomplished people, and they were full of pride. 
So he says that one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brothers. Verse nine, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Now, what? Now, obviously, in a normal human condition, you call people father uh, if it's your dad or something like that. But he's, he's trying to avoid this idea that you have a leader on earth other than him who is your true father uh, in the spirit. And that is not a healthy thing. Now, there's a secondary way where it might be acceptable, but not in this case. Jesus is trying to say to people, don't go by the label father so-and-so. <laughs> Oh, father so-and-so and father, you know, I don't think that's healthy. And I think that's crept into to certain denominations over the years. And I don't think that's been good. So we'll keep going. And verse 10, and do not be called teachers for one is your teacher, the Christ. And, and here he's talking about teacher as a label, as a name. Okay. He's trying to say, you're not ultimately the teacher. We're more like facilitators. And although there is a gift of teaching, so don't, don't think there isn't. But remember, who is our teacher? It's Jesus. The Holy Spirit's our teacher. So if you have the gift of teacher, who, what is that gift? That gift's from the Holy Spirit. So who's the real teacher? The Holy Spirit's the teacher. So I, I, I always got to correct myself to make sure, because I say, well, are you a teacher? I try to change it and say, well, I'm an educator, because I don't like that title of teacher, but I, I use it, but... But, but I'm not a spiritual teacher, only God is. So God ultimately is the true spiritual teacher. Now, do we always consistently apply this? No, we, we have failed and we, we casually use these words. But what do you think Jesus is actually trying to say? He's trying to say, get close to God yourself. Because if you're relying on people too much, you will lack the best teacher of all, who is directly God. So that's, that's why he's trying to get people in touch with God. And he's trying to avoid the religious leader class, which is going to be full of pride. And, and it's real easy. If everybody is relying on someone else to do the religion and not themselves, then all the devil has to do is corrupt that group. And once he corrupts the group, then the whole thing falls apart. And that's what happened in Israel. It really did. So in the next uh, verse, verse number 11, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. So what is the true elevation of our lives is to serve people. So the greatest is the greatest servant who helps the most, does the most for the most, is the greatest uh, person. So Jesus says there are great people. You can be an elevated person, but that's not because you wear certain clothes or jewelry and because you like the best seats or people call you a certain name or title, but your greatness is in your service. That's what elevates you. And we should recognize people who serve and honor them. We should honor them. So in the next verse 12, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this, it's complete opposite of what the Pharisees did. They exalted themselves. The religious leaders thought too much of themselves. 
They were full of themselves. Because they exalted themselves, they would be humbled. But the people who humble themselves that don't go and say they're the greatest and are honest people, those people will be exalted. That's a promise. So it's really good to do this because I guarantee you we've all experienced that, have we not? When we think we got everything together, what happens? Something goes wrong. Something goes wrong. It's I almost 100%. When I think I've got it all figured out, that's when something brings me down, which is actually what the Bible's telling us. So in verse number 13, Jesus then pronounces certain amount of woe upon the scribes and Pharisees. And when you have woe, that means that bad things are going to happen to you. You are in a bad, bad place. You're going to be in danger because of this. So what is going to cause them to have this danger? Well, their lifestyle, for sure. But Jesus explains it. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And that word hypocrite means actor, okay? That's the same word for actor. They're actors. They, they are pretenders. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So what they've done with their teaching is they have shut off the true faith that would save people and have emphasized things that would block people's attention away from true faith. So they've emphasized and majored on the minors and they have minored on the majors. They've literally emphasized things that don't matter that are going to distract people from the true path. And Jesus tells it very plainly that they don't go into the kingdom of heaven and they are shutting out people from the kingdom of heaven because they're not showing them the right path of faith. So he continues, verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. And I've talked about this in the past, but this is one of the reasons why the modern education system, in my opinion, is corrupt. Because the typical university, I don't care what, what variety of college you have, they have people who are hired to go into widows' houses and get them to pay huge amounts of money and in order to name a building after their husband or whatever it is, and they get these money from these people, and the people think that they're doing a good service, but would they be getting a visit from that university if they didn't have money? No. No. Did they go to a bunch of poor widows and, and do the opposite, give them money? No. They target people for their money, and they devour their whole house. I ran for Congress in 1994 in the Tennessee's 4th District, and in that, I had to ask for money. I was told to. You got to ask for money, raise money. I didn't raise, I raised a lot for the time for me, but not compared to my opponent. And I was only 27 years old, so I was a total novice. I didn't know much about it, but I hated it. Well, I, I remember visiting a, a woman who was a widow, and I asked, and she gave me like $50, which is fine. I wasn't worried about that. But, and, and, and I didn't force her to or anything, but still. 
And I got a call from her son. And boy, was he, he, he was upset, but he was upset because his brother was more upset that she is giving money to me, a politician at the time. And from that point on, I said, well, this is not for me. <laughs> that not, I don't want to go and ask anybody for any money. I don't like it. I don't want to. Because I think that it's distasteful for sure, but the fact is, is that we have a world based upon this system of taking money, taking money. And it's, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Now, I talked to them, and I, that was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me, was that that rebuke was good for me. It was very healthy. Because it taught me that this system is a corrupt system that we have right now. And it's centered around money. Because, you know, are... are, are the, they're not trying to buy my vote. I don't know what they'd have to spend to buy my vote. Probably I could be corrupted too, but still, they'd have to spend a lot, okay, for me to pull the lever against the person I would want. I'm not saying I cannot. You know, they give me $5 million. I might give a million of it to, the, to his opponent. You know what I'm saying? I might get more votes that way. So I might actually sell out for some of those people. But on the other hand, let's think about it seriously. Jesus lived in a day when the, the leaders... We're only emphasizing the exterior, money. And they were getting all this money, keeping things going. And that's why they hated Jesus, too, because Jesus didn't go ask for permission. He just did his thing, and they got mad at him for this. But he's calling them out here. They prayed long prayers. He, Jesus meant, emphasized that earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, how that we should not pray repetitive prayers over and over, sort of like saying, pretty please, pretty please, pretty please, you know, the way a child will. We, we, we don't need to do this. Long praying is not necessarily effective praying, but they knew how to pray. They were expert prayers. They knew how to pray. Long, elegant prayers, probably worked hard on them. But because they did all this, they would receive greater condemnation because they elevated themselves and they were in positions of leadership and God was going to bring them down. Uh, and in verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte or follower. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. <laughs> so you go to all this effort, you get this guy to go with you and then he becomes just like you. And he's not changed. He's not done anything. And that is really bad. The word for hell there is the proper word for hell because in the most, the worst form, because he uses the Hebrew word Gehenna, which is a word meaning the Valley of Hinnom, which is next to Jerusalem. And the Valley of Hinnom was where they had uh, a, a dump. Uh, basically, it was a trash dump where there were fires, rotting flesh, rotting meat, worms, all the things associated traditionally with hell. And, and so the word for that dump became the word for hell itself. Now, sometimes the word hell is Hades, a, a Greek word. Now, in that use of the word, it can sometimes mean Gehenna, like this, and it can also just mean the place of the dead. So there's not always meaning the same thing. Uh, a third word for hell is used in one of the books that Peter wrote called Tartarus, 
And that is a place where the angels that are held in, in captivity right now, some of the angels are being held in captivity, are still there being held, so they're not allowed to run and do other things. So God has actually kept some of the angels from doing mischief. So that's a blessing. Continue on in verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Now, they would perform oaths, okay, and commitments, okay? They would make a commitment, but these commitments, they were so technical and how, uh, legalistic that if you put a lot of money on it, the oath meant more, okay? And that's kind of dodgy, really, in God's eyes. God does not, and they, they saw the gift as more important than the altar, okay? That's... Crazy, because the altar sanctifies the gift. Or in the case here, he says, which is more important, the temple or the gold? Well, the temple is more important because it sanctifies everything in it. So, but they thought the gold added value to their commitment. So they had a very wrong-headed view about their commitments. They based their commitment on human values, but not upon God's values, which were very important. So that's why he says this. Now, verse number 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's a, he's done this, what, this is the third or fourth time, fourth time. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, these are various spices, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. By the way, that's a very minimal problem. I mean, that's a small thing, okay? It was not something that, in the great scheme of things, was that important. Jesus is saying, you take, you even give a tithe on spices, okay? They literally, like, it'd be like if you were to get uh, some oregano, and you know, well, I'm gonna make sure that 10% of this oregano, I'm going to give to the church. So they, you know, think about how you'd have to manage that. I don't know how they managed it, but you could manage a tide of the of your spices. I don't know how they did it, but they did it. They found a way. You know, they were they were very strict. So so Jesus said, "You've done this, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law." And let's stop there for a second. Young people today have been lied to. And I, and I want to say that in my experience, young people believe this lie because it's easy. The lie is all sins are equal, okay? They believe a lie called all sins are equal. Now, once you believe all sins are equal, what's that do 
negatively to you. Well, it takes away your power to be able to discriminate between weightier matters of the law and not so important matters. Look, we have to admit that in life, there are some things that are more important than others. If somebody has a rule about chewing gum and they break that rule, they've broken a rule. But I would much rather a person chew gum in my classroom than to hit me, okay? Because hitting the teacher is, under most circumstances, wrong in a great way, right? So if you had a child who's physically threatening you or they're chewing gum, which one would you rather have? The gum chewer every day. I'd rather have that. So there are weightier issues. So you can't emphasize the small things to the, and, and get rid of the, the really important things. Jesus explains what is the real important emphasis because there are more important issues. Don't fight every battle as though it's, you know, D-Day invasion. There are some battles that are worth fighting and some battles, you know, hold back and let, let things happen. So Jesus says here that you have neglected the weightier matters of the law in verse 23, and then he lists three things, justice, mercy, faith. So justice is your basic fairness, how you deal with people fairly and rightly. Treat people justly in how you deal. Try not to show favoritism. Do your best to make sure that their needs are met. Love them as your neighbor. Love your neighbor as you would want to be loved, that type of thing. Mercy is that when they do wrong you, or if they're in a place of hurt, you extend mercy to them and you have mercy on them to help them. And, and maybe they deserve to be uh, wrong, uh, get a lot of bad things. But mercy says, you know what, I'm going to forgive them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show mercy to them. Thank God that he shows mercy to us. Because <laughs> if he treated us as we deserve, we would have no hope. And then he, he ends, the, he says, in faith. We need to know how important faith is. Believing God, very important. This is why it's so sad that faith is not emphasized within our public education system very much. But there are faithful people in the public education system, but it's sad that faith has been maligned. So Jesus wants us to emphasize justice, mercy, faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So he basically said, it's fine that you took this view of, of this, this tithe. And he's talking to the Jews because they were under the law, okay? So he says, it's okay, but you shouldn't have left these bigger things undone. So that's very important. And he continues in verse 24. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I think that's one of the great quotes of history, really. You strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Think about how silly it is. You know, if, if you had a choice of swallowing a camel or swallowing a gnat, I'd swallow the gnat. It, I could handle that. I, wouldn't, I probably have done it before because I, you know, out riding a bicycle or something and didn't have anything to cover my face and, you know, you, what do you do? Too late. I'm not getting rid of it. <laughs> Once I swallow it, it's gone. So I'm going to live, hopefully. But a camel? I can't swallow a camel. It'd take me quite a long time. A lot of meals of eating a camel, and I don't want to stomach it, really. I don't know how they taste, but 
But, and, and evidently, the, the, the Jews didn't eat camels, okay? I don't think that it was a food item. So they strain out the net, they filter out the little things, but they accept these ridiculous things into their lives. And that's, a, that, that's why you have to have a sense of priorities. People have to weigh things in their own minds. We have open eyes, if, but he called them blind because they were. They were spiritually blind. They, they, they just didn't know. They were blind. They have self-blinded. Uh, they were self-blinded. 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. So they have a cup that looks good on the outside, but the inside is, is terrible. And if you ever wash dishes, you know that you want to make sure the inside of the cup is especially clean. And they were not clean inside. Blind Pharisee first cleansed the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. So you want to be clean inside and out. But make sure the inside's your first priority. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So I don't think there's any question that his message was getting across. What he was saying was easy to understand. Beautiful tomb is, is marble, whatever, whitewashed, clean, but inside... There's nothing good about that body. It's dead men's bones and rotting flesh and uncleanness. It's gross. And that's what death does to your body. It's not pretty. And he says, that's what you, the hypocrites here are. You, you are like that. You look good on the outside, but inside you're rotten. Rotten. Even so, verse 28, you also are outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There's that lawlessness again. They prided themselves on obeying the law. And all along, they were lawless. They really were lawless. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So by identifying with the, the, the generation of people who were killing the prophets, they've actually linked themselves to those men. And that's not really a good thing to do. In verse 32 Fill up then the measure of your father's, that's plural there, father's guilt. So he's, he's saying that you actually are just like those men who killed the prophets. Remember that Hitler, okay, let's look at Hitler for a second. Not a good guy, okay? We pretty much agree that he's not a good guy. Uh, there were 40-something plots against Hitler's life. Did you know that? 40-something separate attempts. If you've ever watched some good series on TV that talk about it, it's amazing the elaborate assassination attempts against Hitler. And not one assassination attempt worked. Not one. Some got close. But in one of the later ones, uh, there was a lot of people uh, found out about it. Uh, and Hitler went to uh, General Rommel 
And Erwin Rommel was a hero to the Germans' uh, army. He had done some pretty amazing things in North Africa, but he was associated with the group that had tried to kill Hitler later in the war. So they came and made a visit to him, and they said, okay, here's what you do. We found out you were associated with the people who tried to kill the Fuhrer, so what we are going to do is you are going to take this pill, and it will kill you, or you will go on a public trial, and we will kill your family, and you will be disgraced. But if you take this pill and die, we will quietly handle things for you. So he got forced into a suicide. Yeah, a suicide. Uh, but he was forced to, to kill himself to save his family's life. Uh, his son, who's still living, I think, Manfred, he's a fine fellow, a very uh, good historian, and I've seen him interviewed before. But Rommel ended up dying. They gave him a state funeral. They, they said he's a hero of the, uh, the Reich, and they made a big deal about how he died of some illness. And they never told everybody that he actually was plotting against Hitler. But they sure did celebrate his death like it was the death of a hero. And all along, they had executed him. <laughs> and I think that's kind of the similar thing here, is that they made a big deal about these, these prophets, but in fact, they were just as murderous as the people who uh, lived in those previous days. At, by the way, they prove it by getting Jesus murdered, do they not? <laughs> they sure do. They prove it by having the Lord murdered. But we'll continue. So, uh, when he says, fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, he says, go ahead, keep doing what you're doing. Because you're going to prove what I say is true. And you're going to prove it to the full measure. And they, they obeyed him, by the way. They obeyed him. Look in verse 33. By the way, Jesus, is he, is he calling people names? <laughs> yes, he's calling people names. When you hear people say no name calling, well, don't say that's absolutely always wrong because Jesus didn't sin and he called some people names. But you've got to make sure that you're right with God if you start calling people names, okay? Because don't just say, oh, I can call people names willy-nilly, but... He called them names. He says, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. What Jesus is saying here is that the Jewish people, that he would, God would send people to them, even in the present day, and send them, but these people would be mistreated by the Jews. And they were. The number one group that persecuted early Christians were the Jewish people, the leaders of the synagogues. They were kicked out of the synagogues, they were turned over to the law, and this pattern continued for, a, for several years until some things happened, but we're going to continue here. So he says in verse 35, that on you, you're this generation that he's talking to, the Jewish leadership, he says that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Remember, Abel was the first victim of murder. To the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, 
who we think was one of these men who was killed during the times of the prophets, late in the period of the prophets, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So, assuredly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. How would you like to have the weight of all those righteous people that the Bible mentioned on your generation? Not good. So Jesus says, and, and he also says this is recorded in the book of Luke, but in verse 37, 38, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. That is I use this first, the, the, the Luke version of this, but I use this verse to try to teach children a lot about the Bible because there's a lot of wisdom here. So it's easy to understand if you just take what he says. He says, I wanted to gather you, the people of Jerusalem, under my wings to protect them, but you, would, you were not willing. And, and who was rejecting him? The people who murdered the prophets the people who were murderous in their hearts toward God's servants. So they made their choice. So in verse 38, he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. That means empty. So he pronounces upon them a judgment. Now, when Jesus pronounces a judgment against somebody, that is very serious. Remember, he proved earlier in this book when he condemned the fruit tree or the fig tree. What happened to the fig tree? It died, shriveled up. So he proved in little things that his words are so powerful that if he condemns you, you are finished. You don't have any hope. So he says, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, the people of Jerusalem that are doing this, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a quote from Psalm 118, one of the great Bible prophecy uh, chapters ever, which is a separate study. It's wonderful, but it's a quote of the Bible. Now, this is why I personally, one of the great reasons why I believe that someday Jesus will return to the earth. He will literally go to Jerusalem when they get their heart right with God. I believe that will happen. Now, not everybody agrees with me. There are different views. Some people believe he'll just come back to earth and then everything will be wrapped up. But I believe that he will go back. And I think Jerusalem, at some point, the Jews will come back to know Jesus. And when that happens, they'll be ready to receive him in a lot better way than they did in, his, in this time. And, and some of the evidence I use to pro promote that is in the book of Acts, Jesus was on the Mount of Olives when he went up into heaven. So he left the earth physically and he went to heaven. Well, the angels that showed up said, you men of Galilee, why are you watching up into heaven? This same Jesus is going to come back in, in like manner, just like you've seen him. So... That tells me that not only did he leave, but he's going to come back to that place, just like the, the book of Zechariah says. So I think it's a literal truth that he will literally come to Jerusalem again, 
and that they will accept him because they're going to quote this verse. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, who comes in the name of the Lord better than the Lord? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm coming to you in the name of Jesus. I mean, in Jesus Christ, but I'm not Jesus, but I, I certainly am Keith Hayworth. Well, no one will come better than the Lord. The Lord Jesus is the one who is the Lord and they're going to recognize him as such, which that's why that's, this is a key verse. And I think that's one of those verses where I don't want to have any fusses and fights with people about Bible prophecy, but my heart seems to indicate to me every time I read the Bible that the details about Jesus's death were so literally pronounced hundreds of years earlier, and they happened, that the literal details about the second coming of Jesus will also happen, literally. So that's my opinion, and I really think it's true, but I, I, I do accept that there are symbols and all these type things.